What a blessing it has been to be in the house of the Lord today with you all. And uh, I'm going to give the message today. And if you're visiting, you're probably like, oh my gosh, I only ever go to church for an hour. So <laughs> Providence, we're regulated like an hour 45 to two hours because uh, we enjoy being together, can you tell? And uh, so, but I will try to shorten my words here this morning uh, for you for sake of time. But if you have your Bibles, turn to Acts chapter 4, and I will read verses 32 through 37. Today we're starting a series uh, called Formation, Life Together as the Family of God. And in the post-COVID world, uh, I think it's important for us to have this conversation. What are we about? What are we forming into? And uh, everything we're doing is forming. So what does it mean for us to form ourselves together as the family of God? You see our three loves there on the wall. And in the post-COVID world, we're actually going to kind of take time and rethink through those and give people an opportunity to uh, recommit to those. Or if they say, hey, I've reevaluated my life and that's not me anymore, that's fine as well. But we're kind of entering this stage of kind of a recommitment, refresh as a church. So we want to re-explain our core values and behaviors. Acts chapter 4, verse 32 through 37 says, Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own. But they had everything in common. With great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus Joseph, who is also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. So that is the passage I'm going to talk about. Because it is one of only two passages in Scripture, this, uh, this passage in Acts 2, 42-47, that I think give the best picture of what the early church did, believed, and how it actually flowed out to make a societal impact. And uh, this, this passage to me is so rich and so deep. Uh, one of my griefs is I can only share with you so much of what I feel about this passage uh, this morning. But I actually see in this uh, passage here three different aspects of the early church I think that made it super powerful. For all we know, we know back at Pentecost... 3,000 people came to Christ. Then we see 5,000 men came to Christ. Jerusalem, we think at that time, was maybe 85,000 people. And so you had the people there from the Passover as well. But this church was gargantuan. Like, it had just exploded overnight and really rattled the cages. And the world has never been the same since these early chapters here in Acts. Uh, but if I were to say my heart for the American church after 25 years of being a pastor... It is, man, could we have a church like this? Could we have a church like this? Because it says in verse 32, now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. They were of one heart and soul. I think you can't get away from the fact that there was absolute unity in that church. We often said here in the start of Providence, we are one church committed to one mission with one people in one place for life. The founding team here made a 30-year commitment to do church with each other. We're about halfway through that. And that has been the greatest journey of our life of Christian growth. 
It's had some of the greatest, deepest valleys. It's had some of the highest mountaintops. But I'm anticipating the next 15 years just like I, I did the first 15. In Jewish thought, when they said the heart and the soul, the heart was the center of intellectual activity. The soul was the seat of the will. So if you get this, their, their mind and their desires for action were the same, and it was a force in the city, and they were unified by it. If you're paying any attention to the church news in America today, this is not the picture of the church. Most pastors I know and talk to, their churches through the pandemic and the George Floyd uh, protests split. They didn't have church splits, people just walked out the door. I met with four area pastors here on Thursday morning, and about 30% of their congregations, it's, it's all around the church, just walked out the door and are not coming back. It just became super easy to tune in from the sofa, and people just never got back off the sofa. But then people also had a chance to reexamine their lives. And we have we built an American church based on consumerism and entertainment, and you know what? It now has come home to roost. So we, we saw division. We, church, we saw churches actually split over the use of masks, over positions on vaccines, over political parties, uh, church members holding their pastors hostage to make sure they say something to address the latest uh, political moment uh, in our world. And, and, it, and it was, it's sad to me. It really is. I want to recast the vision of what would it take to be a church that was of one heart and one soul. Our mind and our desire for action was the same. And I think it's time for us to do that as a church. Where are we headed? We are restating our purposes, uh, re-clarifying what we're about and forging ahead. So I, I just ask everybody here, you really need to contemplate in the post-pandemic world what God and the church means to you in your life. And I believe that every single human being on this earth needs a pastor in their life. They need a church that they're part of. They need a community of people that they submit to. And they need to go all in with that group of people. And if it's not Providence, folks, do it somewhere. But it is vital to your health as a person and, and as, a, as a Christian. So, and we want to be a place of unity. So that's why we're taking your time to re-describe what we're all about. We're actually starting backwards and we're going backwards through the loves due to the Cross Purpose Sunday, and I'm talking today about what it means to love our neighbor together. So it also says this, not only did they have great unity, but they had a powerful testimony. In verse 33, it says, with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. The central message of the gospel uh, was the most powerful part of it, because you had to sit there and go, what is happening here in this city? When the gospel moved into cities, it radically upended the social structures. If you study back to the history of the Antioch church, the first missionary church, Antioch was a city that was divided uh, by walls into ethnic groups. And that, that's where everybody lived. It's not very different today, by the way. But to be part of another ethnic group, you actually had to scale a wall to get over to that party in that neighborhood. When the Christians all came to Christ, they came from every single suburb in Antioch, and they came together, and there was no name for them. There was no suburb. There were no walls. Literally, people were wall jumping to, to meet together and to be together. And that's where they were first called Christianoi, the followers of Jesus. Uh, we are looking for people who want to jump the walls in culture today. 
and be one together and, and give this great picture of the gospel. The gospel provides a new community and a new family. Uh, Victoria, I was praying with her this morning. She said in her testimony, you know, her mom died 15 years ago. And she invited her relatives to come watch her get baptized today. And they said, no, we're not church people. But then she said, you know, but one of my leader friends is coming to sit with me. Uh, and the staff here loves Victoria. And Victoria, welcome to the new family of Jesus, right? Welcome to the new family of Jesus. Raised six siblings on her own. And now she's 29 years old. It's time for that woman to have a family that will never leave her and never forsake her. So rather than a church that's putting up walls, we want to be a church that tears them down. And that is the powerful testimony because the resurrection of Jesus provides hope for all people and all communities to experience renewal. And you're seeing it happen here this morning. Then the third piece is radical generosity. I want to camp here a little bit today. Because it says there that there was no needy person among them. If you know your scriptures back in Deuteronomy 15, if Israel kept God's commands, God said he would bless them and, quote, there would be no needy person among them. The next time we see that in scripture is here in the new community of Jesus. That actually there was such a deep economic reality that it actually changed uh, the entire structure. How did that happen? First of all, Christians believed in common ownership. Look at that part of the passage. No one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own. Now, if you've been in church long enough, you finished this statement for me. Folks, everything you have belongs to, say it louder, everything you have belongs to, how many of you believe that? Raise your hand. Everything you have belongs to God. Only half of you. That's sad. Okay. Uh, but I think that's actually a cop out. It says, none of the things that belonged to him was his own. They had everything in common. That means everything you have belongs to the person sitting next to you. That is anti-American, friends. That's why you feel really uncomfortable right now. It is really great to say my Beamer belongs to God and it's all going to burn one day. But what if God says you need to give up your Beamer for a person you go to church with so they have good transportation? Ooh, ooh I don't like that right? It, it doesn't just belong to God, it belongs to the family. Christians believed in common ownership. And all you people that don't like socialism, you're already getting nervous, you're Googling things, you're writing stuff down, don't send the email. I've done more study than you, I promise. <laughs> then Christians shared their stuff. They shared it. How many of you are willing to share your stuff? Raise your hand. Now you're all starting to raise your hands, but there's still only 70% of you, so I got some work to do. How many of you, if your neighbor needed a hammer, they said, hey, I need a hammer to fix something in my house, you'd, you'd borrow them a hammer. Raise your hand. Raise it up there high. This is easy, folks. It's getting harder, so get some credit. Okay, get the hand up there. What if they needed some space to store something in your garage or your basement? Raise your hand. I, I would give that away. Can everybody look around? Look around. No, because they're willing, right? Look around. Everybody look around. How many of you have some stuff that needs to be stored? Raise your hand. <laughs> Why is this so funny? This was actually normal. That we actually shared our stuff. How many have an extra bedroom they'd be willing to give to somebody to provide a season of life they get on their 
their feed. You give them a spare bedroom at reduced rate. Raise your hand. Benson, thank you very much. Benson, <laughs> if you need a place to stay. <laughs> it was the true sharing economy. Now, if you hear those words, sharing economy, you Google that today. What is the sharing economy all about? Airbnb, Uber, right? Uh, that's how to share so you can make money with your stuff. The sharing economy is a profit-generating motive in our, in our culture. In the early church, the kingdom economy was actually upside down. It wasn't a moneymaker. It was a money suck. Like, you actually gave things away in the sharing economy. I, I'm meeting with a... a a, a brilliant friend of mine, she just wrote a book on the integrated life. She wouldn't claim to be a Christian, but she has worked with some of the wealthiest families in our country. And she's advised them on how to give away their wealth. And all those people giving the giving pledge, you know, the uber wealthy, so they give away half of all their money, she's their consultant. I sat with her back here on the, the playground uh, on Friday having my, my, a conversation with her, and she just was publishing her book. And she said, one of the chapters of my book is, called don't give back just give give back is the idea that you spent most of your life just taking and taking and taking and taking and you've been blessed and blessed and blessed and now you're going to give back you know what if we all lived a life from day one where we just started to give to people christians shared their stuff and then they practice radical generosity radical generosity Tithing is not radical generosity. Giving a hammer away once in a while is not generosity. It is actually the, the idea of Barnabas here that they give here. I wish I could spend more time unpacking Barnabas. He's mentioned 25 times. Barnabas gave away his equity. 80% of all giving today is out of the liquid assets that people have out of their pockets. And 80% of all wealth in the world sits in equity. I learned this in philanthropy. I learned it two weeks ago. <laughs> because it's a Jason, you're spending your time doing the wrong thing. You're asking people for their cash. You need to ask them for their houses. You need to be in their estates. <laughs> and last, this last week, I did that with two people. You know, One person in their business next year is going to be $47 million of revenue. And I said, you know what? You need to give some of that to the Lord. right? You need to make us part owner of your business. And when you sell it, we'd love you to actually put us into the liquidation uh, part of that entire business. He sold a field, it says Barnabas did. What did the field represent? Why would he have a field? It's, it's an investment property. And what does an investment property do for Barnabas? It allows him to feel secure about his future. And if he ever gets in a pinch, he can sell that property. He wanted a secure future, but I believe Barnabas was sitting on the third row next to Veronica, Victoria. He was sitting next to Victoria, <laughs> and he fell in love. And he said, you know what? I don't need that cabin in the mountains. I don't need that field. I'd rather give up my security for my future for the security of the women that I'm going to church with, and I'm going to sell that and give away my equity this is where it gets really quiet because we live in a boom town, folks. There is tens of millions of dollars of equity sitting in this room that will not be touched 
for those people in need until you pass away. And Barnabas said, I'm going to live a different life. And then Christians organized their philanthropy. They set up a system. This was the voluntary giving of God's people. He sold the land. He gave it to the elders of the church, and they distributed it. So there was equitable distribution amongst the covenant community. That was how it was done. It wasn't random. It was planned. It was thoughtful, and it was deep, and it, and it changed the world. Now, you don't even know how anti-American this idea is. We have been raised in a culture that breeds this idea of private property. We, we, we are all geared toward this retirement thing that was completely made up. But it, it, Satan has captured our hearts on this stuff. We are the global rich sitting in this room today. So, and just to show you how scared people are of this, I, when I study, part of my study is I read commentaries. These are Bible scholars smarter than me who've studied these passages and they, they write on it. I had 25 commentaries open in my software. I read every single one of them. And how scared these commentators are of this passage. Warren Wearsby says, these verses are a beautiful description of what life will be like during the kingdom age. <laughs> the early church did it. And when we all get to heaven, we're going to do that. In heaven, folks, we don't have <laughs> private property, right? <laughs> it's like, you missed it, Warren. You know, you missed it. We must know one thing above all, this sharing was not the result of legislation. This is the anti-socialism coming out in white commentators, right? It was utterly spontaneous. It's not when the law compels us to share, but when the heart moves us to share that society is really Christian. Then why are we only giving away 3% of our money, folks? The communism was, has no relation to Marxist communism. Please note, this sharing of goods was a temporary occurrence. It is not required by the Church of Christ today. While Christians there have the same spirit of love, they're not expected to sell their goods and form a separate community. And here's another one. While the early church's spirit of sacrifice and loving generosity is worthy of our emulation, we can all sit here today and say those were good people. Believers there are not required to imitate these practices. Nowhere are we instructed to bring our money and lay it at the pastor's feet as though he were an apostle. It is the spirit of their giving that is important to us today and not the letter of their system. I did not find one commentator in all of my Logos software that talked about the beauty of this passage. <laughs> They're scared to death of it. It wasn't communism, folks. It was communism. Everything we had belonged to each other and we shared with each other. Commentators are so focused on what it's not, they forget what it was. Why are we, af why are we afraid to give our stuff? If, if you're giving as a Christian and you're grumpy... Satan got a hold on you. Giving is fun. Sharing is life-giving. The reason we have leaders in this room today is because some believers in this city said, I'm going to share. And I'm going to share deeply. Why is socialism gaining ground in a capitalist economy? Because everybody believed in this idea that in trickle-down economics... When the rich made the, the real good money, it would trickle down to everybody and everybody would be blessed. Does anybody believe that anymore? Something is broken. And this is why the church, folks, became the community that everyone dreamed about. Wouldn't it be awesome when I talk to pastors and I speak in churches about this and people come back with the socialism critique on this, I say, yeah, but wouldn't you just love to be in this church? 
Wouldn't it be great to be in a church where people are selling their houses and, and giving people houses and giving people places to stay? Where the safety net was not primarily the federal government, the safety neighbor was this new, fa- the safety net was a new family of Jesus. We made this bold pledge in the manual auditorium in 2014, and we did not actually know if we could do it. We had a $100,000 check to start this whole thing. And we presented that morning, and we did say, if there is anybody in this church who is in poverty, we will do our dead-level best to provide you a pathway out. And then we made the promise to the community at large that we would do this for you. And our goal, I actually looked at my sermon notes from seven years ago, or that no, was nine years ago at the launch of Upstream in the manual auditorium, and I looked and it said, we believe that the, the people of God really got focused, that of those 16,000 people in poverty, we could get 10% out in 10 years. I read that yesterday in my study. I'm going to tell you this, next summer will be the 10-year anniversary of that message. And we will see 10% of those families out of poverty. So I just want to say to you, the church, good job. And we've been able to do this together because none of us could ever do this by ourselves. What if we had the church that had the same heart, the same gospel, the same stuff, and we moved forward and created this new alternative community within our society. What happens? The Bible says there in that passage, and great grace was upon them all. What does that mean? Grace is the favor of God. The favor of God was upon them all. We live in a society where church is all about the mega the mega church, right? We got to have more people to make a bigger impact. You're not really a pastor worth your salt unless you have a mega church, 2,000 people or more. Those are the pastors everybody wants to hear from. Jesus never one time asked any pastor to build a mega church. He just said, go, do, go be mega lovers and I will pour mega grace upon you. The Greek word here for, for, uh, for that great grace, great is mega mega grace was poured upon them all. I want to sit in a congregation where there is a group of mega lovers making a mega impact and experiencing God's mega grace. That's what I want. And I taste it here this morning. So Providence, good job. Let's go on this journey loving our neighbor together. Second, I love you. Would you please come back every time? every time. Can you say it louder? Woo! Would everybody follow on the count of three? One, two, three. God's going to use you, man. All right? Thank you. And why is it? 2 Corinthians 8 9 says this, one of my favorite verses. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, though he was rich, he became poor. That through his poverty, you might become rich. So to you in this room, I know you have opened up your basements, you've opened up your homes, you've opened up your pocketbooks. 
this little group of people has sparked a movement. I think as of this year, $38 million now has been given to help our neighbors find s sufficiency and find homes. And you know, we've also found our neighbors have become some of our best friends and we're on this journey together. It is a delight to see what happens here this morning. And I just think actually, we've just gotten snippets of this mega grace. There is more to come. Let's pray. Dear God in heaven, thank you for your mega grace upon us. We praise you for what you've done here. Lord, we don't take credit for it. We didn't know how to do this. We still don't know our right hand from our left on this. But for some reason, you've poured out this mega grace upon us. And we celebrate that today. So, Lord, we love the fact that people get jobs and people find friendships. But, Lord, when they find you, it, it, is, even, even, it is even better. So we welcome these new members into the new family of Jesus. Lord, may it be a place where they find their eternal home on this earth and forever in heaven. So we give you praise for what you've done in our lives and continue to pour it upon us. We ask this in your name. Amen.